Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live in the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. These words from Psalm 139 are, are words that celebrate the, we call the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is present everywhere, all the time. Uh, there's nowhere we can go where he's not there. And I asked the question, how does that make you feel when you think about that? A couple of weeks ago, we were away, and at the, uh, the motel where we were staying, uh, there was a sign outside the motel office that said, this premise is, this premises is under 24-hour video surveillance. <laughs> uh, now, why do they put a sign up like that? Well, it's there for two reasons, I suppose. One is to be a warning to criminals, all right? If you try to pull anything around here, we're going to catch you on tape, right? Um, and I think it's also designed to be a comfort to the guests, so they can know that, uh, well, I should be a little safer around here because somebody's keeping an eye on what's going on around here. So when we think about God's omnipresence, that takes it to another greater degree. That nowhere, no matter where you go, no matter what you're doing, God is there. God is watching. God is with you. And how does that make you feel? Is it intimidating? Does it cause fear to say, I don't want God to be with me all the time. I want somewhere to kind of get away from that and kind of do my thing without him knowing about it. Or does it bring you comfort, which it should, to say that no matter what the circumstances, no matter where I might find myself, I am confident that God is there. And this is something I'm sure uh, Jonah knew already, but it's something he's going to experience very personally and very powerful in our our passage today. Um, My name is Jim Korth. I'm one of the uh, congregational elders here at uh, Provision Church, and my privilege to open God's Word with you today. And uh, last week, we began our study of Jonah, who was uh, what we might refer to as a a rebellious missionary, which seems to be an uh, oxymoron, a contradiction of terms there. Uh, but um, uh, we saw that uh, he decided to go in the very opposite direction where the Lord had called him. And I'll mention, uh, as was mentioned a bit last week, that Jonah is probably, of all the, what we call the minor prophets, he's probably the best known one. And I think about Jonah's story, and he kind of makes up the, the big four Old Testament stories that if you grew up in church, any kind of church, you probably heard stories like the story about Noah and the ark, right? Everybody knows that story. Uh, I'm sure you heard about David and Goliath, right? Daniel and the lion's den. Jonah and the whale. Big fish, really, but Jonah and the whale. Uh, those stories are there. If you were ever in Bible school and Sunday school, they told you those stories over and over and over again. And when you hear about Jonah, right, you say, oh, yeah, I know Jonah and the, the, the big whale that swallowed him or the fish that swallowed him. The Pinocchio got swallowed by the whale, right? It was Pinocchio. I used to get Pinocchio and Jonah confused when I was a kid. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, Jonah obviously has a, a, a different story for us. But the problem with knowing stories like this so well is that we sometimes don't pay a lot of close attention to what's going on there. And we can, in effect, miss the trees for the forest in this case, where we know the big story and and we don't sometimes drill down into some of the wonderful nuances in the book of Jonah. Uh, And last year, I read through the book of Jonah and spent a lot of time in it. I was just amazed at some great truths that unfold in it. And trust that as we uh, spend uh, a few weeks in the book of Jonah, uh, we'll be able to, to be drawing all those truths out of it. 
And so today we're going to be looking in Jonah chapter 1. Last week we were introduced to Jonah and, and saw in those first three verses how he was called to go to Nineveh and preach against it because of their evil. And instead of going to Nineveh, he went the opposite direction. He went down to the city of Tarshish along the Mediterranean Sea, got on board a ship. I'm sorry, he went down to Joppa along the Mediterranean Sea, got on board a ship, headed to Tarshish about as far away from Nineveh as he could possibly get in that known world at the time. And beginning in verse 4, I want to read through the the whole passage and then come back and make some observations from it. Beginning in verse 4, we read, But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down the lowest part of the vessel and stretched himself out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we will know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I am a Hebrew. I worship or fear the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by great fear and said to him, what is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So he said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up, throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's take a moment to pray and ask God's blessing on his word today to us. Dear God and Heavenly Father, again we pause here and and, and call out to you with the understanding that we are looking into the the very word of God that has been given to us uh, by your Holy Spirit. It is your truth. It relates actual true stories about what happened in the past. But even more importantly, it tells us something about you, about us. And Lord, may you use your word today to impact us. Lord, may your Holy Spirit illumine the scriptures in hearts and lives here. I pray, Lord, that whatever need people have from this text today, that you would meet them where they are right now, and you would indeed produce the change that you produce uh, as we are exposed to the words of you. Thank you, Lord, for our time. In Jesus' name, amen. As we work through this, this section, we're going to have uh, several observations about what's going on in, in, in the text. And, and, and beginning in verse 4, um, you notice it opens up with the word but. <laughs> but. But is one of my favorite words in all the Bible, right? You know, but is a conjunction that connects two clauses or two phrases together uh, that normally sets up some kind of a, a contrast. And the word but appears many times in the Bible, and, and quite often it's a really significant uh, truth there. Uh, I did once preach a series called The Biggest Butts of the Bible, all right, and uh, 
King Eglon was not listed, okay? And those of you get that, get that. Others are going to have to look up King Eglon to understand what that joke was all about, okay? Uh, but, but the biggest buts in the Bible uh, are, are some pretty significant. I think about uh, what happens in the flood. You know, we're, we were told in, in Genesis 6 through 9 about the flood and how uh, during chapter 7, the, the, the floodgates are open, the earth is flooded with everything, and, and everything's been destroyed. And chapter 8, verse 1 begins with the phrase, but God remembered Noah. Noah was on the ark at that point in time. I think about the end of Genesis when, um, when um, Joseph's brothers uh, are, are concerned because now that their father has died, he might take them vengeance against them, him for selling him off into slavery and mistreating him when he was uh, a lad. And, and uh, he comes along and says to them, to comfort them, says, you know, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. God had something to produce out of all that. And he had a better perspective. So that but was significant there. Uh, I find that uh, in, when Peter's preaching to the religious leaders in, in Acts chapter 4, uh, he points to them and says, you crucified the author of life. You crucified the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. <laughs> uh, he didn't stay dead. And so God's power to, to make that transition. And maybe the most significant one that uh, stands out for, for me anyway is Romans 6.23. The wages of sin... What we have earned, what we deserve to get because of our sinfulness and our sin nature is death. But, right? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when we come to, to that word but, it's a significant one. Take a moment to think about that when you're, you're transitioning through Scripture. And here we find that, that he's on his way to Tarshish. He's trying to free from the Lord's, flee from the Lord's presence, but the Lord's not going to let him. The Lord threw a great wind under the sea. And such a great storm arose on the sea that it threatened to break the ship apart. Um, we notice here, first of all, that, that stands out to me is, is that God was in relentless pursuit of Jonah. God was in relentless pursuit of Jonah. Uh, as he was trying to flee, God didn't give up on him. I've always wondered, why didn't God just say, okay, go ahead, Jonah. <laughs> I'll find somebody else to go to Nineveh and preach instead, right? I'll find a more willing partner, a willing person to do that. Go live in Tarshish and stay as far away from me as you want. But God doesn't do that. God, God doesn't have that attitude. He doesn't give on those who he has chosen, no matter how hard they try to resist him. And um, the bottom line is that God loved Jonah too much to let him go. God loved Jonah too much to let him go. And he loves us. He loves his people too much to let them go. And many can testify of, of that experience they have themselves with the, the relentless pursuit of God uh, in, in their hearts and lives. I want to tell you about a, a friend of mine uh, named Harvey. Um, uh, Harvey uh, knew him 25, 30 plus years ago. Uh, he was, uh, started attending our church when I was pastor in, in New Jersey. And he was, um, uh, he was a Jewish man by his upbringing. By this point in time, he wasn't much of anything. But he was Jewish. He started coming with a friend and attended church for a couple of years. Uh, we frequently talked about the gospel. We heard the gospel preached. And, and we would talk about his understanding of, of the Messiah and, and such. But um, really never showed too much interest in, in the gospel because his life was pretty good. I introduced him to a, a counselor, a, a staff member from the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, which focuses on Jewish evangelism. And he contacted him, offered to do some Bible study with him. And, uh, and Harvey told him, listen, I, I appreciate your reaching out, but I'm, I'm really not interested. I've, I've got a pretty good life going for him right now. I've got a great job. I've got money. I've got a wife. And besides that, my father would never let me consider Christianity, you know, devout Jew. 
And so Harvey will testify and say, don't say things like that where God can hear it. (laughs) Because over the next two years, Harvey first lost his job. And he couldn't find another job that would replace his income, so it began to become some financial problems. In the midst of the financial problems, his wife said, I want a divorce. And then suddenly his father came down with cancer and died rather quickly. All those excuses he made were taken out of the way. It took another four years, even after all that. It took another four years, but Harvey eventually surrendered to that relentless pursuit of God in his life. And, and maybe you find yourself in a place like, uh, like that of, of Harvey or even Jonah, a position where, um, where you have been resisting God, fighting against him, but storms have been thrown in your way to, to try to get your attention. He wants your attention. Why? Because he loves you too much to let you go. He wants to draw you in. He wants you to, to come experience the blessings of being with him. And it's important for us to, to, to remember that he's going to stay that, things are going to stay that way until we do surrender. But then when we do surrender, oh, oh, what, what peace, what joy. You know, 25 years later, Harvey is still uh, walking with the Lord, and God has uh, replaced everything that was, was lost in his life and is today impacting others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and we know that that uh, relentless pursuit of God is awesome. And I think we would do well to sing of the overwhelming, never-ending, relentless love of God in our lives. So as we continue, and that's also another great source of comfort for those of us who have family members, friends, loved ones who are in the state of Harvey or in the state of Jonah, <laughs> where they have moved away and they're not interested in following after the Lord to know for your loved ones that God is relentless in his pursuit after them as well. And as heartbroken as you may be over their circumstances and situations, he's just as heartbroken. He wants them for himself. And so may that be a source of comfort as we think about the, the power that he brings. And so we see that God sends the storm in, along the way because he is in relentless pursuit of Jonah. Uh, and I want to notice the second observation is the, the repercussions of Jonah's rebellion, the repercussions of Jonah's sin. And the fact is that our sin, our rebellion against God, has repercussions that go well beyond our own, well beyond just our, ourselves here. Um, and it impacts other people. In Jonah's case, it put the lives of the sailors in danger. Right? It put the ship in danger. They threw all the, the, the goods overboard to try to lighten the ship. Uh, great financial loss. The poor people in Tarshish waiting for their Amazon delivery never got them. Okay? <laughs> And then in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this danger, and ultimately they have to throw Jonah overboard and have to live with the, the feeling of sending a person to their death. See, Jonah's sin wasn't just about him, okay? It wasn't just between him and God. Uh, it affected everybody. It affected people around him. And such is the case today. We often hear people that whenever Christians or anybody else, you know, raises some kind of moral standard, there are often people who say, well, what's it to you? You know, how's it affecting you? Uh, it's just between me and God. You know, it you shouldn't get into my business with all that stuff. And the fact is that, that uh, there are a lot of things that are, are everybody's business because they do have impact upon things. And, and aside from a, a moral issue that we could talk about, I, I was thinking about that this week. And it, one big issue that, that kind of blew up, a, um, well, quite a few years ago now, uh, has to do with the seatbelt laws, all right? Now, some of us are old enough to remember when we weren't, didn't have to put seatbelts on, right? 
Some of us remember when they didn't have seatbelts in cars, <laughs> right? It was, they didn't have that. Uh, when I was in high school, if somebody got in your car and put a seatbelt on, that was, a, that, was a, that was like, what do you put a seatbelt on for? I'm a good driver, you know? Don't be ridiculous. What a, you know, don't do that stuff. And then, lo and behold, they decided to make seatbelts mandatory for things. Then it became a big issue. Uh, many of you grew up, never had a difference, never knew the difference, right? You've been buckled in and secured very tightly since you were born. But uh, for others of us, I used to, you know, just bounce around the car all the time without any seatbelts or anything, uh, you know, and I'm still here to tell about it. But, the, uh, the, uh, but, uh, but in the midst of all this, they, they started coming down. And this was like a, a threat to our liberties. How can we do this? Uh, what is it to you if I don't wear a seatbelt? I'm just putting my own life at risk. And, and you know, a lot of thought was going that way. But I, I recently came across a study by the Department of uh, Transportation in Idaho, and they were looking at making seatbelt uh, a primary offense, not a secondary offense, which means, you, you know, you could only get ticketed for not wearing a seatbelt if you got pulled over for something else. But they're thinking about making it where that can be sufficient to get pulled over, right? Several states do that. Um, but in their, in their study, they, they talked about the fact that when there's an accident, about 75% of the cost of an accident is paid for by society as a whole, not just that individual, but it impacts society. It impacts it in the, in the uh, idea of uh, insurance premiums go up, taxes go up, out-of-pocket payments for goods and services go up, increased charges for medical care go up. All of that happens as a result of accidents in general. And what they found in their study was that if there's a crash, a vehicle accident, uh, with, uh, with, with no injuries, it costs about $3,000 for society as a whole. That's pennies, you know, for everybody by the time you spread that out. But if there is an, an injury, a visible injury, it raises that cost to $125,000. If there's a serious injury, it raises it to $460,000. And if there's a death, it's $9 million, right? That's the impact that that can have. So all that is to say, by where we do know, empirically, all the evidence is there that wearing a seatbelt will help reduce injuries and help reduce death. And we all have stories about somebody who's the seatbelt killed them or something like that. But, but overall, we know that's the, the general rule. So the idea being that you wearing a seatbelt is really good for, for everybody, you know, not just for you, not just for your family. It might have to suffer your loss. And that seems like a, a little thing, and I'm not here to debate the importance of seatbelt wearing or anything like that. But it just shows how some, some little thing that we might think is just us has a bigger and broader impact than that. When we translate that over to moral impact for sin, and all the rest of that, it, it, it goes far, far greater. Uh, people don't realize the impact. Um, when we think about the war on poverty, we fight a war on poverty without the major weapon we need, which is morality. You know, the number one cause of poverty is single parenthood. Now, I'm not saying if you're a single parent that you're, you're in bad shape, but it has huge impact upon things. The Brookings Institute, which is a liberal think tank, a few years ago published a report that, that simply said this. Listen, if you stay in school and don't have kids before you get married, it's unlikely you will ever be in poverty. If you stay in school, don't have kids before marriage, it's unlikely you'll ever end up in poverty. And their conclusion that was, stay in school. And I thought... Where's the rest of the conclusion? <laughs> How about <laughs> make sure you, you know, make sure you, you follow that. So what ends up happening, that, that impact that poverty has and the impact it has on prison systems and everything else spreads all over the place. So it, it is important for us to uphold the values that, that we have. It all makes sense. It's better for society as a whole. And in the midst of rebellion, we have to stop and say, well, don't talk to me about that. It's just between me and God. It's just between me and one other person. Well, no, it's not true. It does have broader impact upon that. But you know what? The flip side is true as well. 
People who practice righteousness have a real positive impact upon their culture, upon their society. And a good example of this is, think about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible tells us that God came to Abraham and let him know what was going to happen. I'm going to, we're investigating this. God knew, of course, but we're investigating this, so to speak. And, and Abraham begins to bargain with God and says, well, you're going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he begins to talk to God and say, what if there's 50 righteous people there? Well, if I can find 50 righteous people there, God says, I won't destroy the city. All right, well, how about 40? <laughs> God said, yeah, 40 is good too. Do I hear 30? <laughs> Got to get down to 30. <laughs> 20, 10. And Abraham all along says, I, I feel bad asking you this, Lord, but, but what if there are 10 righteous people there? Will you spare the city of Sodom and Gomorrah for 10 righteous people? And God said, yes. 10 righteous people could have saved that city. He couldn't even find the 10, though. Right? And so it was destroyed. So what is holding back some of God's judgment from countries and cities and everything around us right now, it is often the, the, the handful of righteous people there. So we need to be pursuit of righteousness because it impacts other people. Jonah's sin had repercussions for the people around him. Same is true for us. Our obedience, our righteousness will do the same as we move forward. We need to recognize the impact that that has and pursue righteousness for that very reason. So, as we read on, though, we find what's happening here, that the, the sailors are afraid, and we're going to see, as a result of all this, there is a great revelation of the God of the heavens that unfolds for them. It's a revelation of the God of the heavens. In, in the midst of all this, the sailors are afraid, and they start crying out to their gods. And, um, and, and that, two things we want to notice about this. This was not an ordinary storm. There are plenty of storms. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Plenty of storms hit the sea. These sailors, most likely Phoenician sailors, those are the people who dominated the, the, the Mediterranean Sea as the leaders at that time period. Uh, they'd been on the sea for centuries, well, um, for years anyway. They knew about storms. They knew how to handle themselves in storms. But the fact that this storm was so severe <laughs> that they began to panic and they all cried out to their gods tells us there was something different about this storm. And somehow they knew it. And they were looking to figure out what was the, the cause of this. And the Phoenicians, uh, the, these sailors were, um, um, uh, again, they, they, their homeland was along the eastern um, um, shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, cities of Tyre and Sidon, which are frequently mentioned in the New Testament and Old Testament, were their cities, as well as Byblos. Those were the, their three main cities that they were a part of there. And, uh, and they established outposts all around the Mediterranean Sea. So they were the sailors of the time. And like most people at that time, they were polytheistic. You know, they believed in many gods, different gods. And usually those different gods were based upon a location or based upon some kind of characteristic about that god. For example, in Byblos, El, Baalat, and Adonis were the, the gods that were worshipped there. If you came from um, in Sidon, you would find Baal, Astarte, and Eshman. Uh, Mycart was the highest god for the people in the city of Tyre. They had a lot of overlapping characteristics of these, these people, but they had different gods based upon where they were from. And besides those gods already mentioned, they, they also worshipped Reshef, who was the god of fire and lightning. Dagon, who was the god of wheat, uh, he invented the plow, so they say. Uh, Shadrapa was associated with snakes and healing. Um, 
Gachusor was thought to have invented iron and metalwork. And then there were other deities that were personifications of other ideals. Siddic and Mysore were justice and righteousness. So they had a whole lot of gods to call upon. And each individual would have a different god that was kind of their go-to god they were trying to worship. And their assumption in the midst of all this is that someone has offended one of these gods. And we need to do something to fix this problem. And in the midst of this, uh, this time of, of calling out on all these gods, what do we find Jonah doing? Well, <laughs> meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep, you know. And you might say, how can that be in the midst of a storm? Well, running from God is exhausting, for one thing. You know, it, it takes a lot out of you physically, mentally, emotionally. So I'm sure he was quite exhausted. He was also in the deepest part of the vessel, which is the part that's least affected by storms that are out there. So that makes sense uh, in, in, in some degree. But in the midst of this storm, it didn't cross his mind really, apparently, that somehow his God was a part of this. And so the captain finds him, wakes him up. <laughs> you know, God said to get up. Now the captain says, get up. And what are you supposed to do? Call on your God. Maybe this God, you've got a God, maybe he'll consider us. And, and we get to this point here where they, they haven't been able to figure out you know, what's going on here? The, the storm is getting worse and worse. And they say, we have to determine who is responsible for this. Who do we blame for this? And so they cast lots to determine who that is. Uh, casting lots was a common form of divination in, in those times among many people. Even in the Bible, we have God calling on the casting of lots to reveal certain things. So we think about um, after the, the Israelites won the battle of Jericho, they went to Ai and got defeated. Because one of the people in the Battle of Jericho had violated the law, <laughs> the requirement, and took some of the goods for himself when it was all supposed to belong to God. And as a result, they said, after the loss of Ai, after thousands of lives were lost, one person's sin impacted the whole community there. They had to say, well, who's responsible for this? They cast lots, and eventually the lot fell to Achan, and his sin was revealed. Even in, when it came time to divide up the promised land, they cast lots to divvy up the land, and who's going to get what property, what piece of land, and where the borders were going to be. And even in the New Testament, when it came time to replace Judas, what did they do? They cast lots and to, 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 uh, to select a replacement for him. So, so it's, it's not supposed to be the way we do things. You know, we're not supposed to make decisions by tossing coins. At the time they did so, we noticed that once we get to the day of Pentecost and post-Pentecost, there's no references to the casting of lots any longer to determine anything. And I think that's because we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit uh, from Pentecost on. You have the, 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 that those who believe have the Holy Spirit who gives wisdom and gives them direction for all that. And the Holy Spirit can provide that guidance. And when they gathered together uh, uh, to decide who was going to go off on the first missionary journey, they didn't cast lots to determine that, Right. The Holy Spirit led them to choose Paul and Barnabas, right? And so that's where we have it today. So this is not a way to justify saying, well, you know, if you can't make a decision, just toss a coin. You can still do that if you want, <laughs> you know, but uh, 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 it's not about that. But in this case, God was using that lot, the casting of lots, to, uh, to identify the fact that Jonah was the, the, the source of this problem. And so they asked for information from him, and it's at this point in time, that he speaks up about who he is, and this really gets their attention, right? I am a Hebrew. That's the, the, the word that the, the non-Jews used of the Jewish people. I am a Hebrew, and I worship, and, or you can translate that as, as, as uh, fear, the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and dry, dry land. 
He identifies, first of all, that he's a worship of the Lord. And you'll see that that word Lord is there. It's in the small caps, which means it's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, or sometimes we say Jehovah. Kind of the formal name of God, the personal name of God, the, God, the name that God used when he revealed himself to, to Moses and said, I am that I am. It uh, uh, breaks out this idea of Yahweh. And so he identifies that he is a worshiper or one who fears the Lord. And who is he? He's the God of the heavens. Think about those other gods. We have a God who is the God of this city, a God of this mountain, a God of this river, a God of all these different things. But he is, he is the God of the heavens, right? He is the God of the heavens. Not only is he the God of the heavens, he's the one who made the sea that we're struggling with right now <laughs> and made the dry land where we are trying to get back to right now. Uh, this revelation of, of, of this, uh, um, no doubt the Phoenicians, you know, they, they had a lot of, you know, connection with Israel in, in the past, and they, no doubt they knew about Yahweh in, in some sense, but, but coming face to face with somebody who was, was kind of forced to give this testimony really got their attention. It seized them with fear because they're all figuring out which one of you offended a God who's thrown the storm at us. Jonah, you feared the God of heaven? And the God who made the sea and the dry land? What have you done? Why are you trying to get away from him? You can get away from the God of a mountain by going to a different mountain. <laughs> you can't get away from the God of the heavens because it's always there. You can't flee him. What, what, are you, what are you doing? What have you done to us, they said? What is this you've done uh, to us? And, 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 and so Jonah, uh, Jonah is in the midst of this who didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't want to preach to the Gentiles there, right? <laughs> He's put on a ship where he has no choice but to preach to the Gentiles there, and, and uh, begins to start to come to his senses in the sense that it's almost up until this point, until the lot fell to him, he was hoping, well, this is just a storm. <laughs> Maybe it has nothing to do with me. But as all this unfolded, he suddenly came to recognize that, that he was the one responsible for these things. Which brings us next to the, 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 the reaction of Jonah to all this. <laughs> his reaction in, uh, um, is... You know, he, he says in verse 12, pick me up, throw me into the sea so that it'll calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. It's good that Jonah says, I'm the one to blame. Because a lot of us don't like to take blame, accept blame for things that go on, right? We're always looking for somebody else to blame for our situation. Uh, and that began at the very beginning, right? The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin. God comes to Adam. Have you eaten from the fruit that I gave you? And Adam says, well, the woman <laughs> that you gave me, gave me the fruit and I ate of it. So don't blame me. Blame me. Or maybe you're a little bit responsible too, God. You gave me this woman. You know, what? she's the one that did that. Uh, so he's passing the blame. And of course, what does Eve do? Eve says, well, it was the serpent. <laughs> the serpent was the one who deceived me. Don't blame me. Blame him for deceiving me. And the serpent looks around. There's nobody else to blame. So he kind of <laughs> looks back at all that. So, but the, the whole blame game begins right at the very beginning. We don't want to take responsibility for our actions. And to Jonah's credit, he does accept the blame for this. But he only accepts the blame after he's found out. He doesn't volunteer when the storm begins. He doesn't volunteer when the captain says, hey, call to your God. Maybe he'll save you. Well, let me tell you what's going on. You're right. It's, it's my fault. He doesn't do that until later on. Uh, originally, when I outlined this, I was going to use this to talk about the repentance of Jonah. That here he's repenting of his sin, accepting blame for all this. But the more I've meditated on that the last few days, I, I'm not really sure that we have real repentance here. And here's why. 
You know, repentance is a, a, a 180, a turn, a complete change of, of mind, of heart, of direction, of, of action. Uh, he's going to go a completely different direction uh, for all that. But what happens with Jonah here? He accepts blame for this. He realizes he's responsible for it. But when they say to him, what should we do to make things calm down? He says, throw me into the sea. What he could have said was, turn the ship around. Take me back to Joppa. I'm heading to Nineveh to do what God told me to do. And you know what? If they'd have done that, I bet the sea would have calmed down. And it wouldn't have cost them anything. They already threw everything overboard. They had nothing to deliver at that point. But Jonah doesn't do that. He says, just throw me overboard. Yeah. Throw me into the sea. In effect, he's saying, you know what? I'm running from God. He's caught up with me. I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. He had no inkling that he was going to get saved through all that. Oh, spoiler alert. Jonah doesn't die. Uh, <laughs> uh, he had no inkling about that. He just said, uh, okay, I realize I can't run from God. Just let me go. Just let me go. So on the one hand, there was a good reaction to his part that he did at least fess up to it. Um, but ultimately, it wasn't fully repentance. It's going to take a little bit more for Jonah to, to come further along in this process. Nevertheless, um, uh, he convinces the sailors <laughs> that this is this course of action to take. We first says, throw me into the sea. You know, they don't really want to do that. So they try rowing harder to get back to dry land, but, but they can't. And uh, eventually we come to the, the, the point where we see this, this result that unfolds uh, when Jonah is finally cast in. Verse 14, it says, they called out to the Lord. They called out to Yahweh. Please, Lord. Don't let us perish because of this man's life. Okay. We know that this man is the cause of all this. Don't let us perish because of this. And because we're going to cast him into the sea, don't charge us with his innocent blood, with innocent blood. Not really innocent, but in their thinking, you know, that's it. For Lord, you have done just as you pleased. See, this storm was different than anything they'd seen before. And when they saw all this happen and heard what they were responsible for all of it, uh, they, they come to that point where they acknowledge all that's going on. Then they, what do they do? pick up Jonah, they throw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Right? The men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice of the Lord and made vows. There's a progression of the sailors' fear. At the beginning, they are fear because, for their lives because of the storm. And then when Jonah says, I worship the God of the heavens who made the sea and dry land, I think they're a little bit afraid of Jonah at the time. Wow. And you've resisted him here. And now that he's been cast into the sea and the sea has calmed down, what do they do? They fear the Lord. <laughs> they fear the Lord. And they offer sacrifices to him. And they make vows to him and, and, and such. And, and some, um, you know, the, the, the question is raised, did these sailors get saved, okay? <laughs> was this genuine faith? Did they, did they get converted? And, and there are some commentators who say that, well, no, they probably just added Yahweh to their pantheon of gods and just one other god they can call upon when necessary. But, but others would see it a little bit differently, as, as I, I do, and think there was some, some real spiritual impact upon these men uh, because of the fact that they are calling out to the Lord by his personal name. They are uh, making vows to him, offering sacrifices to him. And so I don't doubt that at least some of these men were profoundly changed and, and profoundly came to a place of faith for that. And I think that in part because when we study the book of Jonah, we see Jonah as uh, we call a type of Christ, right? 
when you study the Bible, there's, there's a, a, an area of, of study called typology where we, we um, um, look at in Scripture, a type is a person, event, or ceremony in the Old Testament that foreshadows something in the New Testament, right? Um, and when something is a type of Christ, then we say that it was a person, event, or ceremony in the Old Testament that behaves in a way that corresponds with, with Christ and his work and his actions in the New Testament. And Jonah is a type of Christ for us here uh, in that um, uh, he says, if you sacrifice me, you'll be saved. One life for the many. And because I see him as a type of God, and there's other reasons that we'll, you'll see as you go through the rest of Jonah and listen to the words of Jesus, who even says, as uh, Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale, of the fish, Again, spoiler alert for that if you haven't read all the rest of Jonah. Uh, <laughs> so even so, the Son of Man is going to spend three days and nights in the tomb. And so, so we find that, uh, uh, that with, with Jonah being a type of Christ who a sacrifice is made so others can be saved, certainly that's true physically for that, but I can't help but think from the language here that, that, that we're going to get to heaven and see some of these Phoenician sailors and say, so how did you, how did you get here? Well, you know what? We picked up this guy on a ship one day, <laughs> and they're going to share this testimony of what happened along the way there. Uh, so uh, 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 no one's done this. If I was more creative, I'd do this. I would love to write a story of this event from the perspective of a Phoenician sailor. Any good creative writing types people out there? Think about that, what it was like to be on the ship, stop by Joppa, this guy gets on board, and all this kind of stuff. It'd be a pretty fascinating story for that. But, uh, but, um, but sticking with what God has given to us in his word, um, we find that um, um, this becomes a great type of Christ about the fact that he freely offered himself in the same way, offered himself as a ransom for many. He did so to pay for our sins so that our sins could be forgiven. And when you go back to verse 12 and 13, I want you to really notice this. Jonah says, pick me up, throw me in the sea so that it will calm down for you, for I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. This is the solution to the problem. Throw me into the sea. And what was their first response to that? The men rode hard to get back to dry land. <laughs> they tried to do it themselves instead. And this happens often when people hear the gospel. Uh, they're here, they hear the, the good news that by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, you can have salvation, everlasting life. And they say, that sounds good. I'm glad that's an option. But you know what? I think I'm going to keep on rowing a little bit harder. I think if I keep on trying myself... I can still get there anyway. Uh, I, I appreciate the offer. I understand that's there, but I, I don't, I don't want to deal with all the ramifications of believing in Jesus. I want to make it on my own. And there may be some of you today that are doing that very thing, that you are, 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 are rowing harder and harder and harder to try to get to the shore, thinking that you can save yourself. And as you come under conviction about the fact that you're experiencing storms because, you, because you've been re- resistant to God along the way, that God is really, really calling you to give it up. Get rid of those efforts of your own. And instead, turn to me and put your trust and put your hope in me. We can't do that. We need to stop rowing and accept Christ as Savior and Lord. So as we, as we think about Jonah and his resistance today um, uh, to, to God, I, I think about three different ways that this, this impacts folks in this room or folks that are listening. Uh, number one is you do have people who are, some of you perhaps, are like where Harvey was. You know? You've heard the gospel you got all kinds of excuses why you don't want to go that way. But it's hard for you to row against the storm. And if you're in that position, today is the day where you need to say, you know what, Lord, I give up on all those efforts, my self-efforts. 
And I recognize that, that Christ is the one who sacrificed himself. He cast himself into the sea of sin and death to pay for my, for my sin. And I want to accept that gift and experience the calm waters that come on the other side of the gospel. Doesn't mean life will get easier. Sometimes it'll get harder. Most of the time it gets harder. But that calm that comes to your spirit when you're in Christ is something that, that is beyond measure. Maybe you're here today in that category. But maybe you're here also and you're more like Jonah in that you're a believer. You've put your trust in Christ. But somewhere along the way, you kind of veered away from where you know God wants you to be. Maybe you resisted a call that God placed in your life to go somewhere to do something and you just said, nah, I don't want to do that. Or maybe there's there's certain lifestyle changes that you know are not befitting of someone who names the name of Christ and you say, I'm not ready to make those changes. And maybe now is the time that God is throwing some storms your way to say, listen, I I love you too much to give up on you. (laughs) I want to bring you back. And maybe you need to stop and say, okay, I'm going to stop fleeing. I'm not only going to change my mind because I get caught doing something wrong. I'm going to change because I I recognize that, that Jesus should be my all in all. Maybe that's where you are today. You need to come to that place. And then the third great area that, that, that touches my mind here, too, is, that, is to think about those of us who, who have Jonahs in our lives. I feel like Ryan up here. <laughs> Um, you know, we have Jonas in our lives who, who are, are, are away from God and they're going the wrong direction. And we know whatever efforts we put forth to do something about it, we can't seem to get anywhere. But we need to remember God's relentless love. And God's pursuit of those who have wandered away. And I pray you can take comfort in the fact that, you know, God hasn't given up on them. There's a song that gets sung that's a bit controversial. <laughs> we don't really sing it here too often. <laughs> and I quoted it earlier. But it's amazing how one word can change a song. <laughs> and there's a song that, uh, that we could sing that says, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending Relentless love of God. It chases us down. It fights for it till we're found. It leaves a 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Yet he gives himself away. Oh, that overwhelming, never-ending, relentless love of God. And I trust that today that, that that's the main theme we're talking about. Whatever else you might remember. Remember, God is relentless in his loving pursuit of those that he has chosen, those he wants to know you. And so as we close, I mentioned those three different categories. I want to just uh, challenge and encourage you to see where you're at today. If today is the day you need to put your faith and trust in Christ for the first time, don't leave without talking to somebody. Talk to me. I'll be in the back afterwards if you need to. And, you know, or many others in this auditorium here could help you with that. Or maybe you're, you know, you've been wandering away, going down the wrong path, and know you need to be put back on the right path. Again, talk to somebody that you're close to. Talk to one of the, the elders or about all that. And then also take courage and take comfort in what we have in Christ's pursuit of our loved ones. That's the band to come forward. 
And uh, as we prepare to, to, to close in song, let's take a moment to pray. Under God and Heavenly Father, as we uh, pray today, as we close this uh, time in uh, a well-known and just remarkable portion of Scripture here, I pray that our, our hearts and minds are been touched and that those again here that need to be saved would turn to you. Those who need to repent and come back to you would turn to you. I also pray, Lord, for, uh, for those that are away from Christ. And I don't usually do this here. What I want to do this morning is if you'll... Um, with heads bowed and eyes closed, we don't usually say that kind of phrase here, but I'd like to, if you have a loved one, if you have someone in your life that's a Jonah, I'd like to know that just so we can pray for that, that person. Not their name, nothing like that, but if you have people in your life like that, just uh, lift up a hand real quick for me to see that there's others that are there. So, yes, thank you. All right, you can put that down. So all over the auditorium, we all have that. And so, Lord, I want to pray for these individuals. Think of their names. Think of their faces right now. Think of where they are. And, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you on behalf of these people. Sons and daughters, parents, siblings, friends. People that, as a a result of their, their rebellion, are breaking our hearts. And we know they're breaking your heart as well. So we ask you, Lord, that in the midst of this time that you're relentless, you would relentlessly pursue them with your love, with your mercy, with your grace. If you have to send storms in their lives, do so, Lord. We just ask you to do whatever it takes to bring about those changes. And we pray, Lord, that we'd be able to, to in the end, testify of those who have come back home. And Lord, again, for those that are here that need Christ, Lord, give them no peace or rest until they call upon you. For those in this room that may be in rebellion, give them no peace or rest until they return to you. And thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace in Jonah's life. He didn't deserve it, but you loved him too much to let him go. And for that, we give you thanks and praise today. In Jesus' name, amen.